All right, this is the top of our third segment, and it is this part of the show where we traditionally delve into obituaries uh, when, when they arise, and we have one to uh, address today. We would like to note the passing of Wally Herbert. Mr. Herbert died June 12th at his home in Inverness, Scotland, as uh, complications related to diabetes. He was 72. Actually, Mr. Herbert was knighted by Queen Elizabeth in 2000, and so I suppose he's actually Sir Wally Herbert. Although history books generally record that the first person to reach the North Pole on foot was Admiral Richard Perry in April of 1909, we at Radio Parallax believe uh, the best evidence would suggest that the first person to accomplish this feat was, in fact, Wally Herbert in May of 1969. Mr. Herbert was quite the explorer of the polar regions in the late 1950s and early 60s while traveling on foot and in dog sled. He mapped 45,000 square miles of the Antarctic. Joined by the, some of the members of the Inuit peoples, he later roamed thousands of miles in the Arctic. In 1969, Mr. Herbert led a 3,620-mile trek across treacherous ice flows at the North Pole which started in Point Barrow, Alaska, and wound up in Spitsbergen, Norway. It was on April 4, 1969, 407 days into the journey, that the team stopped at the North Pole, planted a Union Jack, and ate beef stew from supplies hauled there by 40 sled dogs. Mr. Herbert later said it seemed like conquering a horizontal Everest. Referring to the pole, he said it was too cold and too windy to hold any other celebrations. When he arrived, it was... 50 below zero. Now, of course, if you check your history books, it will claim that it was 60 years earlier in 1909 that Admiral Perry self-reported to the world after returning that he'd gotten to the pole on April 6th, a claim which we here at Radio Parallax find to be suspicious at best. Our skepticism is rooted in a chapter of Andreas Schroeder's book, Cheats, charlatans, and chicanery, subtitled More Outrageous Tales of Skullduggery. Mr. Schroeder had previously edited the book Scams, Scandals, and Skullduggery. Anyway, in this highly entertaining chapter in the book, uh, Mr. Schroeder outlines some of the polar hanky-panky, not only of Robert Perry, but also of his rival Frederick Cook and Admiral Richard Byrd who is dubiously credited with being the first man to fly over the North Pole. Anyway, writing in the New York Times, Dennis Hevesy, in Mr. Herbert's obituary, noted that the claim by Richard Perry has been debated. In 1973, Dennis Rollins, an astronomer, wrote a book, Perry at the North Pole, Fact or Fiction, in which he calculated that Perry had missed the pole by 60 miles. In 1985, Wally Herbert who had written nine books on polar exploration, was invited to examine Perry's diary and astronomical observations. These were documents that had not been made public since 1911. In September of 1988, the National Geographic Society, which, by the way, had sponsored Perry's expedition, published an article by Mr. Herbert in its magazine detailing navigational errors, suspect distance records, and inexplicably blank pages in the Admiral's diary. Drawing on new knowledge of Arctic Ocean weather, currents, and ice drift, Wally Herbert calculated that uh, Perry missed the pole by 30 to 60 miles. Mr. Herbert was particularly concerned that Perry's handwritten diary offered no record of his 30 hours near the pole. Several pages were blank, and the entry for April 6th 
made no mention of the poll. Instead, a loose-leaf page had been inserted declaring, The poll at last! The obituary went on. In 1989, however, the National Geographic Society commissioned the Navigation Foundation, a professional society, to examine the evidence. And based on their analysis of photographs, celestial sightings, and ocean depth readings, the foundation concluded that Perry's final camp had been within five miles of the pole. And we'll tell you right now, this last study is a bunch of bunk. <laughs> because in Schroeder's book, he noted that he was all of a sudden gaining 50 to 75 miles a day over polar ice, whereas other explorers rarely exceeded 15 miles a day. Oh, and coincidentally, he'd sent back at this point witnesses that were familiar with celestial navigation. Most prominent among them, Robert Bartlett, uh, who Perry sent back home, even though Bartlett was the only man who could have verified his claims for positions, distances, and the location of the pole itself. So, as far as we're concerned, the first man to walk to the North Pole, Wally Herbert, passed away earlier this month at the age of 72, and he accomplished the feat 60 years after the history books say somebody did it. And now you know the rest of the story. All right, let's do some uh, some local news. Apparently, a water trail, which is going to hug the 72-mile shoreline of Lake Tahoe, is um, in the works. State legislators are trying to designate the California Tahoe Conservancy, the agency responsible for protecting Tahoe, as a leader in planning amenities along this, in essence, kayak trail throughout the lake. Article in the B by M.S. Nkoji uh, quotes, Local kayaker Bill Griffin, uh, who's a canoeing instructor in Sacramento. Uh, Bill Griffin's 80 years old. He paddles in the American River 265 days a year. Gives this idea a thumbs up. He notes the concept is a good idea. I'm sure there's a lot of people who want to make trips around the lake. And having hiked uh, as part of this ortho conference uh, last week along the Rubicon Point, this is some stunning scenery. This will make a wonderful uh Wonderful route for people to get in a kayak and paddle around Tahoe, and I'm, and I'm looking forward to doing it myself uh, one day soon. And in other water-related news with a, with a local, uh, local hook, we have the following. Article from the AP dated March 22nd of this year. Dateline, Washington. Two leading House Democrats asked the Interior Department Monday to investigate whether a former agency official pushed to remove a fish from the threatened species list, even though she had a potential financial stake in the outcome. Julie McDonald, who resigned last month after a rebuke from the department's inspector general over other endangered species issues, was heavily involved in the delisting of the Sacramento spittail while owning an 80-acre farm in the creature's California habitat near Dixon. Says the article, the fish, a delta minnow, was listed as threatened from 1999 till 2003 until it was taken off the list after intervention by McDonald, who was Deputy Assistant Secretary for Fish, Wildlife, and Parks when she resigned. Biologists in the Sacramento Field Office had concluded the fish should remain on the list. Mandates to protect the spit tail could have required flooding in the Yolo Bypass, the floodplain where McDonald owns her farm. In a letter to Interior Secretary Dirk Kempthorne uh, last month, 
Democratic Representatives George Miller of Martinez and Nick Rashall of West Virginia said, It is our understanding that this is the first and only time that a fish species has been removed from the list of threatened species for reasons other than extinction, said the AP. An interior spokesman did not immediately respond to voicemail messages left after hours, and a message from McDonald left at her home east of Dixon was not immediately returned said senior officials at Interior, if it turns out that former Deputy Assistant Secretary McDonald acted inappropriately regarding the Sacramento spit tail, we will conduct an appropriate review of the regulatory process that led to the final decision. And you know, when the government gets involved in this thing, sometimes there's some pretty hefty fines. Anybody got a buck I can borrow? And on a happier note involving uh, conservation, we would note that the bald eagle, the symbol of the U.S., has made a remarkable comeback. Once an estimated 100,000 nesting pairs of these birds graced North America, but uh, the widespread use of pesticides brought them close to extinction in the 1960s when fewer than 500 pair were observed in the continental U.S. Now, thanks to conservation efforts by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, They expect the 2006 count to pass 9,500 breeding pairs in the lower 48 states. Saw my first bald eagle up by Redding about six years ago, and uh, I'm very encouraged by this. And some unfortunately bad news regarding animal conservation. The famous Davis Toad Tunnel apparently didn't pan out. When, uh, back in 1995, Yolo County built a tunnel under Pole Line Road to uh, create an access for toads to breed in a drainage pond that was located uh, near the post office, um, well, it it made the national news. It was on CNN, it was lampooned on Comedy Central, and we're sorry to report that, well, it just just didn't pan out. Apparently, John McNerney, a Davis Wildlife Resources Specialist, uh, confirmed recently that no record occurs of the tunnel ever being used by a toad. Of course, article by Bill Lindelhoff in The Bee did note that the original design did have some flaws. The opening was shaped like a steel scoop and became hot. It was noted that toads tend not to jump onto a frying pan when they could avoid it. But uh, Davis author Ten Puntillo, who wrote a book called The Toads of Davis, uh, was saddened by this latest news, but said he thought it did work at first when they watered one into the tunnel at the post office, I guess <laughs> cooling off the frying pan. No, the truth is apparently toads are just not used to uh, hopping through a tube to get where they want to go. Uh, it was just kind of unnatural for them. Unfortunate, um, and there's been quite a bit of mortality on the toad front in the region. Sad to report this, but, uh, you know, perhaps in the future we can learn some lessons and design some better toad access. All right, final item of the day, a science topic. We like doing a little bit of science on every show, and so let's end with uh, a fascinating item from The Economist magazine. As you may or may not know, North America used to have a lot of megafauna, big animals uh, cavorting about on the continent, things like mastodons, woolly mammoths, short-headed bears, ground sloths, camels. But at some point in the fairly recent past, uh, these large mammals disappeared. Human beings have been blamed uh, by some, and where climate change uh, has been the presumed culprit, uh, according to other investigations. We've always leaned toward, uh, you know, the humans did it theory, but uh, there's a a fascinating new study that indicates that uh, it may have been neither. 
human beings nor climate change that was responsible. Well, it, I, that's actually it may have been a climate change, but a climate change based on an impact in the Earth's atmosphere by a comet. According to James Kennett at UC Santa Barbara, uh, basically any amateur archaeologist could inspect the evidence by digging deep enough. It's noted that in many places of the U.S. and Canada, at a depth corresponding to 12,900 years ago, a few centimeters of charcoal will appear. According to Dr. Kennett, this is the product of wildfires that spanned the continent after an object roughly a kilometer grazed the earth, broke up into small pieces, and deposited all of its oomph as heat into the atmosphere. In a report submitted to a meeting of the American Geophysical Union in Acapulco last month, Dr. Kennett noted that if you examine this, uh, this charcoal, you will find in it glass-like beads made of carbon. To melt carbon, you need a temperature of about 4,000 degrees centigrade, which is pretty hard to come by here on planet Earth. That is quite a bit hotter than uh, the hottest types of lava rock. And when these beads were examined by an electron microscope, they were chock full of diamonds, a micron or less across. Now, uh, you know, to create little mini diamonds, you need not only heat, but you need a lot of pressure, which gives researchers the idea that an impact from space may have been responsible. Now, one thing they haven't found is iridium, which is considered to be the fingerprint of the impact 65 million years ago that wiped out the dinosaurs, which leads them to lean more toward the comet theory. Comets are basically, uh, basically giant snowballs, uh, dirty snowballs, ice and dust, and certainly a big enough comet hitting the Earth's atmosphere could have done this sort of thing. Did it? Well, research will have to continue, of course. But it's been known for some time that something big happened about 13,000 years ago. The, uh, the last ice age had ended, the earth was warming up, and all of a sudden things got cold again. This has been blamed on a giant lake in, in North America busting loose, uh, spilling cold water into the Atlantic, disrupting ocean currents. But it now appears that perhaps uh, some of that heat came from, you know, an extraterrestrial impact. Very interesting stuff. And by God, I think we'll put a call into UC Santa Barbara and see if we can't speak with James Kennett about this. Unfortunately, we are out of time today. Our thanks to Dr. Garen Wintemute of UC Davis. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. And on the way out today, I think we will use some appropriate music uh, based on the fact that it was 40 years ago this month that the celebrated Monterey Pop Festival took place at the Monterey County Fairgrounds. The festival became legendary for being the first major American appearance by Jimi Hendrix. So I think we'll go out with a little bit of Mr. Hendrix as recorded on the legendary album Band of Gypsies. 